0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. As always, great episode today, we have Mitch of Merida Capital, one of the biggest investment firms in cannabis today. Uh, We talk about how they deployed $80 million into the space over the last 18 months, $80 million. Yeah, that's a big number. We talk about why he doesn't think that's such a big number yet. Uh, They've invested in some companies you know well, Cushco, New Frontier, Steep Hill, Candescent. Uh, Now he's raising his third fund. We talk about how that's changed from raising the very painful first fund. We also talk about his use of Twitter and why he makes sure to post on there daily. Uh, It's a great episode, guys. Hey guys, I want to talk a little bit about distribution. In California, in order to get a distribution license from the BCC, you need to file what's called a motor carrier permit. And the problem is most insurance companies and insurance brokers are either unwilling or unable to do that MCP filing. And that's where Heffernan comes in. They're helping companies with this all the time, doing the filing for them. And if you need some help, just reach out. They're here as a resource. They've also helped companies like cultivators and manufacturers and retailers. You can have conversations totally for free with them they're just a resource here and they're here to help we've set up an email for you to talk directly with marshall and tanner over there that's ic at heffins.com ic at h-e-f-f-i-n-s.com they're waiting to hear from you and thanks again guys for supporting the show All right, guys. Let's get into the show today. Great one with Mitch of Merida Capital. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Mitch, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited for the interview. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me yeah absolutely. So I'll get you started on an easy one. What is Merida Capital?
1: Merida is a private equity fund focused on the cannabis industry, obviously since we're on investing in cannabis. Um, and in our core, we're really, while we're an investment company, our core is really about the consumption of data and information and diving through that information to create context. And then using that context to develop a thesis for driving asymmetric returns skewed to the upside for investors who have uh, trusted us with their capital.
0: Got it. Yeah, I want to get into that thesis a little bit, but I want to start with, you said private equity. Uh, Why private equity and not venture capital? Kind of talk about that analysis a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, we're more of a hybrid anyway. I think the cannabis industry has definitely stretched uh, certain boundaries of definitions that the traditional finance world uses but as as most wall streeters when you think of private equity it really just means not trading stocks which we don't do Mm -hmm. we do invest in public companies but often it's bespoke transactions so venture capital you think of earlier stage companies and what we discovered early on and when i say early i mean 2012 so really early um is that it's very difficult to invest in companies that don't have a defined pipeline of revenue or a defined base of revenue. Mm-hmm. And we want to create a vehicle for sophisticated investors where they could, where we can make high conviction investments and they could trust and have more certainty as to the return profile, the return quality of what they're investing in. Because as we all know, one of the challenges of cannabis investing is both the opaqueness of the information and data flow. Where do you get source? You know, where do you get data from? Where do you get information from? But also really just figuring out what should an entry point be? If you think that cultivation is an interesting play, now, obviously, you have 30, 40 choices on the public markets. But what if you think that uh, hydroponic retail supply stores are interesting? Well, Growgen might be the only way to pu- play that publicly. So it really is about private equity because we're mostly investing in private companies and then trying to help them develop deeper along their own supply chain, deeper into their sales channels, and then either position them for a public offering or an eventual sale or just running a profitable company that can dividend cash. Although uh, I think if you want to look for dividend paying companies in the cannabis space, you're going to have a very difficult time fighting that right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, when you started back in 2012, though, there must have been more early stage opportunities. Has that thesis sort of grown over time?
1: Well, merit didn't exist back then. So as the evolution um, of what we were doing. So I was really greenfielding with a bunch of people. And by that, I mean, I was looking at opportunities that were primarily based on the West Coast or in the high volume markets of whether Washington or Colorado, and really assisting friends of mine who had migrated out to Colorado from New York and were trying to figure out how exactly they could um, either get around the residency requirements in Denver, way going back to like 2009. So by 2012, we were thinking of applying for a license, one of the licenses that Connecticut was going to give out in uh, a medical limited license regime, which now everyone knows what they mean. But in 2012, we had no idea what this quasi oligopolistic market was going to be. So there was no real thesis for Merida back then. Back then, the only real way to play this space with any level of institutionality was to was to focus on cultivation and licenses and, and limited licenses. And so that's what we did Uh, as we were evolving as when we won one of those licenses, luckily in Connecticut, the, we were the highest scoring team, we started looking for supply chain and you know, it, it came down to how good you could Google vape cartridges or uh, hydrocarbons or something you needed nutrients, and so the discovery process of finding that supply chain, we were one of the bigger people in the country at that point. You know, 65,000 square feet of indoor grow was huge in 2013. Um, and so ne- what happened is we just couldn't find the right supply chain. And so over time, and then we won another license in Minnesota where there's only two licenses by law. Over time, we realized that it was such a fragmented supply chain that it was- you almost needed to invest in companies to help grow them, hmm. so that you could get the supplies you needed efficiently. And by 2016, after four years of that wilderness, the supply chain had evolved enough where I could invest in a grow generation, a Kush hmm. bottles, uh, which is now called Kushco, obviously, hmm. and and start to in- invest in a new frontier data. And so it really, so when you ask about that thesis in 2012, the thesis in 2012 was survive long enough to sell product to the medical patients of Connecticut in a very restrictive regime mm-hmm. it was survive long enough so you could s- sell product to to Minnesota patients who had never had access to medical cannabis. The thesis has obviously changed for the entire world now, so um, Merida along with it didn't even exist in 2012 and now is what I would like to say a pretty fleshed out thesis of investing in supply chain logistics, friction removers, those those inflection points within the industry that are, are naturally growing quickly as larger, more commercialized businesses grow. Mm-hmm.
0: So once you identify that there are some investments to be made, companies had grown enough, tell me a little bit about that first raise. I mean, uh, it was different times back then, but tell me a little bit about Fund One and getting that started.
1: Well, it was difficult in some ways uh, because I had focused mo- mainly on on. Um, raising capital using my banking background, my family office investing background, my general counsel of a huge broker dealer background, my public company background to, to develop specific state entities. And the challenge with that is that you're then telling people, I have a thesis, I haven't invested along that thesis yet, but here's why the thesis works. So you're, 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 describing something that doesn't exist yet, whereas when you're raising money for a license in Minnesota, you can say, here is the parameters of that investment. So the challenge in 2016 was shifting from a more defined company-raising methodology to please trust me with your capital and trust that my background, et cetera, et cetera, would translate into good investments in these logistics companies. So at first, there there was definitely a... Um, I mean, I can tell you a funny little anecdote if you, if you want to hear. Yeah. It. Yeah, um, yeah. Go ahead. So, you know, I'd worked uh, with the Parsons family. Dick is the former chair of Citigroup and his son. I helped uh, Semper Capital, which is a m- more than two billion dollar asset manager, primarily in credit, build all these products. And so uh, a very high net worth individual had agreed to take a meeting with me about Merida. Um, and so we sit down and um says hey i you know i'd love to do some some stuff with the parsons family and he goes i know you work with greg i know you've done some some stuff for for dick and uh so let's talk and i'm like well actually i'm here to describe you know meridive this this cannabis fund and he goes oh that's the cannabis investment fund i go yeah yeah and he goes oh i didn't mean to put you on my calendar sorry And he (laughs) so there was definitely this you know, your, your people looked at my resume and didn't even necessarily. Uh, it didn't register at first that it was a cannabis fund, mm-hmm. and um, and so translating that to people who weren't interested in cannabis because even two thousand sixteen is is. Think of your evolution. I mean, I'm sure you can describe five thousand things that have changed for you over the last three years as your interest has grown and as people the interest is growing the, the quality of your interviews, what you've learned. Same for us. I, I it, you know, convincing people that. There was a specific expertise you needed to do high conviction investments in the space, and then developing a thesis, which now obviously is articulated across two funds, and spending more money than than um, you know more than almost two hundred million dollars combined between the investments we made in direct cultivators in 2012, 13, 14, all the way through Merida's first two funds. And it's a big translation. It's a big change that really required. It 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 was my own friction. So I am a microcosm of the cannabis industry where you have a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs who are stepping into these businesses and going, wow, there's more friction than you can imagine because it's federally legal. And you know, just answering a thousand questions on banking and deconstructing the mythology and trying to deconstruct the ethos that everyone's a stoner and you know, it those all took time. And obviously now I can sit here with you and say it's all been worth it. And, you know, there's a lot of work still to do. There's a lot of political stuff still to happen that has to happen in the space. But those little friction points give you the muscle memory that it takes to launch something and to keep pressing ahead. Because there's a moment where, I hope you felt this because I hope I'm not alone, where you, the challenges sometimes make you feel like a fraud. They make you feel like you're not up to it. And, you know- Everybody those,
0: feels that way sometimes, for sure. That's yeah, sort of and, imposter syndrome, right?
1: Yeah, and in that dark moment, you go. You know, maybe I should have stayed with just building these licensed companies. Maybe I should have applied for a new license in um, in some of the states where I didn't apply, like Arkansas or uh, in the first round of the Pennsylvania or whichever opportunity. Those were opportunities I was very comfortable with. But over time, it just felt very difficult to me to put your heart and soul into building a company. Get a license is basically vaporized. Mm. And so because of that, it it just for for me. I I remember the first call I made. to to someone after a very we we did not get a license in the first round of Maryland but were able to merge with a winner. So we we saved an enormous amount of capital and time and effort that we had put in. But I remember the first day after we got the notice that we had lost, I I asked a very senior uh, healthcare official who's been an investor in in other things that I've done, what if I could build these companies the same way we just did this licensee, but we don't have to rely on licenses. We can scale across state lines. We can supply chain and he was thrilled and and his reaction might be the thing that really launched Merida in a substantive way Mm. because it was he gave me the confidence to say this is something I maybe it's not just an idea maybe this is actually what I should be doing and what I'm better at and and ultimately you know it's gotten me through those moments of the imposter syndrome when you you commit to an opportunity and maybe you don't have all the capital you need that second or maybe the opportunity is difficult and so because of that, you know, there's been really dark moments where me and my wife have had some deep conversations about, do, do we have what it takes to get over the hump? You know, me and my partners. And, and in those moments, you really do need to have that muscle memory that you can rely on so that you can continue thematically and consistently pushing ahead so that you don't change the way you do things. And I think we've done a really good job of staying consistent amongst the challenges, amongst those friction points. And I think it's actually one of the things we've we've come to be known for.
0: Very inspirational actually. And I think uh, people often see the successes, they see the highs, they don't really understand how much work and sort of down periods went into that. And very cool of you to sort of be upfront and, and honest about that. So fund one and fund two, as you said, $200 million. Now you're raising fund three. Um, how has those conversations changed? Has it gotten easier? I'm sure it has. It must have.
1: Yeah. Uh so um, you know, with the last answer I gave, there's a little bit of a juxtaposition position now, which is when you've developed uh a real on-the-ground knowledge and and you know, with with operational knowledge of building these in very difficult environments with very little guidance or even analog to to base off of. Um And you've done that for years and spent a hundred million dollars plus on cultivation opportunities and then 80 million in a fund on supply chain and other cultivation opportunities. And now launching a a third fund, you know, sometimes people will look and say, uh, Hey, you know, they look at the size of what you're trying to raise and and they compare to what you've raised. Now for us, I don't think this is a big step up in class, right? It's slightly bigger than what we've raised collectively over the last couple of years. But Fund one was only 15 million and we tripled the size of fund one more than tripled, actually almost, almost four times it in half the time. So what's happened now is that when people, when we speak to people, they can actually read our materials, read um, some of the, the commentary I put out, you know, the last one size matters went to almost 11,000 people. Mm -hmm. The article I wrote about constellations investment in, um, in canopy was on new canopy uh, new cannabis ventures and was syndicated by Al Brockstein very humbling that he would want to syndicate it mm-hmm. that went out to multiple thousands of people and so when people can when you when you have enough people and bandwidth and you can start to articulate your thesis in a more broad sense people walk into the room kind of knowing what merit is about and I think that's actually shortened instead of spending the first 45 minutes explaining what you do and how you do it they have a sense of that and that's really shortened the wick on a lot of opportunities on a lot of investors who kind of know what we're doing at first. And and it's really, um, in one way, that extra effort that we've put to make sure that Merida has a, you know, it, whether it's our website, we have a lot of transparent material. And I think that comes back to the challenges I faced, which were answering thousands and thousands and thousands of questions about banking, or what is the you know, Connecticut law versus the Arkansas law versus the Michigan law versus, and you know, I spent so much time reading all of those materials over the last seven or eight years, you can't fake that knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only one way to understand knowledge that has to be read, to read it, and you know, it's hard to catch up. If you're if you're standing in a river that's moving, you know, 15 miles an hour, the water that just passed by your legs is gone, and I think, you in, know, in, in one sense, I learned a lot from the public company I used to be at, uh, Market Access, that ended up making a lot of money selling data around bond trades by being the first person to collect that raw data. And I think that's why we invested in New Frontier, and that's why I've basically patterned Meredith's thesis and strategy on building a massive base of data and information. And then also using very uh, curated contextualization of that data and information so that when we walk into a room with an investor or, or a room with an interested party of any type it could be strategically it could be a, a new company that's that's launching something we actually have a very defined sense of what's capable of how to articulate certain ve- verticals we're interested in and you know i don't think they're just hearing the normal pabulum or or pontification of this is going to be big jump on the you know jump on the train with us we're going um i think we can give a little bit more than just uh, that type. And I think, um, you know, I think it also leads to a natural, a natural adjunct where people will say, yeah, I've heard about you. You know, and <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but companies that, that often come in for investment with us have a, a sense you skip that first hour of getting to know you. And I think that really does let you get a little deeper. and And over time, it's actually in some way, it's been interesting because for me, I feel that the easiest way to have a consistent thesis is to be just really open about it. That's why I'm open about the challenges. That's why I'm open about that every day we see challenges every day. There's something that happens that makes you scratch your head and say, wow, this is different than anything else I've ever experienced in my life. And that's why I have so much respect for every entrepreneur that comes in here, for every person who's taking the chance for the political people who risked their lives, their livelihoods to transition in 2009, 2007. People went to jail for this. The, The people who are on the minority side and who have fought against the disproportionate criminalization, all of these elements, these people all deserve respect. In a lot of ways, I'm standing on the shoulders of people who have done incredible Absolutely. things. I have a real business to run, and I, I can normalize it. And I think part of what Merida tries to do is tap into that by being authentic with with how we're tapping into it, rather than saying we have this special, you know, super secret theory. The reality is we're crunching a massive amount of information and data, and we're not. It, it the, the, the reality is that just takes a tremendous amount of work, and so we're putting in the work. We're not faking it, so that you know, and it reflects in what we do and, and how we can pay homage to, you know, to the people who, who really, who really cut the forest up with machetes so that we, you know, we're not Mary Ware and the Lewis necessarily. We, we're definitely not Balboa. Uh, we're more of a, call it the, uh, the wagon train that came with a whole army surrounding us yep. for
0: protection. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so but one it's been of easier. the,
1: it's been easier. I mean, yeah. just to answer your question <laughs> shortly, it's been easier <laughs> Um, the check sizes that we're getting from investors was bigger. I mean, our average check size in fund two was nearly $535,000. The average check size in fund one, which is obviously more conceptual, was only about $150,000. So larger check sizes, more institutional investors. We have a lot of sophisticated Wall Street money from the personal accounts of of hedge fund managers themselves. And, you know, they have friends. And so that, you know, and I think there's two or three other funds that are really tapped into that as well. And you probably know the names, but I don't want to you know, let's just say that I think there's there's a lot of great investors in the space who are doing a great job. And I'm sure they're seeing the same, call it, um, you know, inertia decreasing over time. People are moving quicker because they're not as scared about the, you know, we used to get questions like, if I invest in your fund, can I go to jail? I'm mm-hmm. definitely not
0: getting those questions anymore. Yep. Oh, that's, that's refreshing. Um, or am I going to be audited immediately? <laughs> so.
1: Oh, you, I mean, I've gotten questions from, you know, are you, basically the modern version of bootleggers to, um, you know, every analog that you can make. If you're on a panel, you're going to get a crypto question. If you're, you know, it's, it's, it's almost cliche at this point, and that's why um, we try to keep a, a, a little bit of a try not to take ourselves too seriously. Obviously, we, we take what we're doing in the data and contextualization component very seriously. You know, the investment side is Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street, right? Compliance. Um, and and everything is buttoned up. You know, we have a third party administrator. We have an auditor. We put out four quarterly reports. We have a shareholder recorded call. People who don't attend that call get the recording. It does a live Q&A. We're treating ourselves like a public company because that's a background I'm very comfortable in. But that's in terms of shareholder interaction. You know, on the flip side, every day there's a question about well, how are we any different than crypto, which makes no sense because the two are so unrelated, they're not even in the same world.
0: Wow, I can't believe you get that question. That's that's hilarious. One is a real world business. One is um, a dream, and mostly supported by blockchain. But but you're gonna yeah. get
1: me in trouble, Brandon. Don't <laughs> go there.
0: No. I said it, not you. Yeah, uh, they're,
1: they're similar. They're similar in terms of an emerging. They're sexy in terms because they're they're emerging. But other than one being one is like right, you said like an intangible currency that's being built on technology. Which by the way, the technology very valuable. Blockchain.
0: Blockchain is rad. Blockchain is yeah, that?
1: Blockchain oh. is amazing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But but cannabis itself is, I mean, don't don't forget that $250 billion of cannabis was smoked last year, the mm-hmm. year before. Mm-hmm. The year before, the year before. Now it's transitioning to a legal market. And that's why when I get that question, blockchain didn't exist five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Cannabis has been, I mean, they found seeds and seedlings in Tutankhamun's tomb. So
0: Yeah. So,
1: no, this no. is not some new thing. It's not that trendy.
0: I wonder what strain that was, those seeds. Uh,
1: gosh, you know, <laughs> we'd have to say some Middle Eastern, uh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, it'd probably be some kind of hybrid, I'm some assuming.
0: Afghan Kush or something like that. Yeah,
1: exactly. Some hybrid OG that'll put you to sleep. Some, an indica, let's yeah,
0: say. An indica, yeah. So, one of the transparent things that you do a lot is you spend a lot of time on Twitter. You run Merida's Twitter yourself. <laughs> and um, I wonder, you know, the cannabis industry has largely gravitated towards Instagram. Um, why do you think that is? And and what what do you see the value of, of spending that much time on Twitter is?
1: Well, so it's interesting you ask that because I actually don't spend a lot of time on Twitter. Okay. Um, I do run the feed. But what I do is I'll often queue up thoughts and then I'll kind of binge for 15 minutes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's it's actually – it's remarkably efficient use um, – because if you notice, it's, it's actually now I'm sure you're going to go back and look, but if you notice, they come in bursts. And then maybe when I'm sitting down at night, I'll take a few minutes to reflect on the day and on the news. And I think, it, you know, I look at it as a way to have discussion and to provoke thought. And I think there's a lot of people who are looking for information sources they can trust. And, you know, I think of myself as one of those sources because we're reading, we're doing, you know, we're not just posting a headline. We're trying to put a little commentary. We're trying to help people and democratize. The, the information flow because it isn't democratized right now. You know, there I could probably, if you asked me to research something, within 30 seconds, our team would have a pretty defined view on something based on all the information we've crunched before. Whereas if you're an individual investor, you know, what, what are you really relying on? So we use it as a conversation piece or as a way to, first of all, it's great. I can literally scroll. I follow, I don't know, maybe a hundred people or so. And within that feed, I can see Fifteen to twenty of the most relevant articles, and obviously I use Equio, which is um, New Frontier's platform for curated news. Um, those are important to me because I also write this really long commentary. You know, the most recent one was called "Size Matters: Why Cannabis Hemp and, uh, and CBD Will Be Larger Than Any Analytical Prediction," mm-hmm. and it, it allows me to to put these into like take a note and say, just like my old legal background. Right you know, you're listening to the CEO of a company speak, you're taking notes, and then it's up to you to create the action that they want based on the raw material you just got. So I look at Twitter as a way to sort of provoke conversation and to highlight governance related stuff and to keep people apprised of stuff that we think is important. But the reality is I'm really spending no more than maybe 15, 20 minutes on it a day. It's, you know, it, it, it I look at social media in general it can be a, a huge time suck and I'm extremely busy to begin with I'm not looking for things to spend time on and I'm barely on a computer to, to be honest there, there'll be hours where we're either on calls like this or or you know speaking to investors doing something on a portfolio company we're very involved in our portfolio and so um, we we use it you know Instagram obviously there's a visual component to cannabis around a plant and around uh, the you know the bud and that's not really, I'm not saying that that's not interesting, but it's not where you're gonna find a whole ton of Merida's time spent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we often get to the end of like an investment pitch or something, and people are like, you know, you didn't even talk about a plant. And I, I said, well, we were talking about the plant the whole time, you know, because the plant has to be, grown it has to be cut down it has to be dry it has to be cured it then has to be lab tested all of those things are about the plant but I mean we're not going to sit in front of people and try to convince them that our stuff is less and green and someone else's is dark green and therefore we have more virtue <laughs> so Instagram is sort of the measuring stick and I think um it, there's a value to it but that's really operators you know it's it, there it really is like several industries that are coming together now you have the east coast which is pharmaceutical you have the west coast that's kind of high volume and Passion driven, not that there's not passion in the East Coast, but it's much more restrictive. And all although California's now changed their laws to mirror the East Coast. And we see what that's done to the, to the, you know, the pioneering ethos of the West Coast. It's really destroyed the California market for the last six to eight months. It's dislocated a lot of things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's gonna be long term, it'll be the best thing that ever happened because now people will know what they're getting and there'll be more, uh, more solid supply chain, more stable supply chain. But When you when you look at all those different things, Instagram is a place where all those people can connect in a in a free form environment. Uh, But for me, Twitter like I can read about the states act. I can read marijuana moment, which you know Tom Angle's site, which is phenomenal for everything legal. Um, You know, and it allows me a lot of times I'll see them on Twitter and I'll call a Todd Harrison or or a Tom Angle and say, Hey, what do you think of this? You know, here's a thought I have, and then those end up in my writing. So it's it's a way for us to interact with you know. 5,000 people at once, um, on thoughts. And, you know, I, I, and I try to engage with people when they, when they, if they're respectful and they have good thoughts, they're going to, we're going to answer them because we, uh, we think the, the, the most important thing you can do with your time, with, with your interest in life is to be respectful towards people and have respectful disagreement or respectful agreement, or, you know, to really advance the, the information battle space, which at this point is still, but we're not going to get the industry to a normal place if we don't, uh, it can't just be this narrow strip of passionate people. It's gotta it's gotta normalize. and the only way to do that is to really uh, create a sense that the people who are putting out information are doing it in an honest and transparent way.
0: What a novel idea to be respectful on social media. That's uh... look
1: through my look through the way I engage with people who comment. Yeah. I mean look there, don't get me wrong. i We do some other content, you know, these interviews we did, and some guy said, I, I really wish you'd shut up and let the other person talk. I mean, you know, you got to take that with a, a grain of salt, but I'm I'm self-aware. I know I talk a lot, so um, it hurt for about eight milliseconds. But um, thank God, there was only one of those, and not 70. If that thing gets like a thousand likes then maybe
0: there's a problem. (laughs) I once had a YouTube comment that the host always brings it back to himself. (laughs) I was like, okay.
1: Is that what a good interviewer does? They engage the palette, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Um, so on Twitter and through your other content, you've been pretty critical of med men and Tilray and some of the other big names out there. Um, why do you think that despite, the fundamentals lacking a little bit and this sort of overhype machine. Why do you think most of at least US investors still are so interested in those groups?
1: Well, I actually don't think we've been critical uh, per se of the companies or the passion or the we may have been critical of certain actions, right? Um, because well, one thing is we have we we really believe that if you're gonna be a blinking neon light in Times Square. Then, then you're actually you're a representative of the industry, and the industry is still small enough uh, that it's important that that everyone operate at a certain level of of conduct. Now, I'm not saying that those guys haven't. So, you know, Tilray, and I think those are two different animals completely. In fact, I don't think I've been critical of Tilray at all. I think what I've highlighted is there's a disconnect in their stock price r- with respect to the business. It's not great for anyone for some stock to go parabolically vertical and then parabolically down. I mean, it, it's it's not good because then if if 90% of the industry or of the people who aren't in the industry are like, wow, look at that stock, and then it collapses, they may think that the rest of the industry is and basically it's not even based on Tilray's business fundamentals. So I think Tilray's unfairly, you know, in some ways, I try to be pragmatic. I'm just highlighting information. I'm not sure there's a lot of commentary, but we do like to think out loud and hear what other people are thinking because. The reality is, Tilray seems to me like a tremendous medically focused company. Uh, Privateer has been nothing but classy and professional in the way they conduct themselves, and so I think that I may comment on their stock price or on the fundamental disconnect. But I'm not sure you can actually say that we've been like personally critical of the things that no, they're it's not
0: personal. It's not personal, right? Yeah.
1: No, but I but I think it's different in MedMen. Sure, I, I'd say that some of the governance stuff we highlighted it, but again, I mean. Anyone who doesn't think that Medman is a pioneer deserving of credit and respect, I think we've been in some ways praiseworthy as well. I mean, recently I I was fascinated at NCIA in Boston in, in Adam Bierman, the CEO of Medman. His interview was phenomenal. I thought he was genuine. I mean, I, I there's some things I disagree with him on, but I think he's a pioneer. I find him to be um, incredibly genuine in in his approach to the business. I think he's trying to do the best he can. And in a lot of ways, I think what I highlighted early on in their public offering was the infrastructure built around them sort of was what I was, I think, pointing to is that how would an underwriter let this, let certain things go through when, you know, when I look at the world with, when I worked at a PubCo 13 years ago now, so gosh, I really liked when it was only five years ago, but anyway, so, um, you know, you learn certain things that you can't unlearn and there's certain normal, um, there's certain normality that you expect in a public offering. Now I know it's the cannabis space. So there's a certain amount of leeway because it's in this emerging space, but when you file public filings, I just assumed it would look like other things I had seen in my life. And I, all I did is highlight things And I think when you look, there are other Twitter people that were much more critical and that, that are just, they, they just don't like, you know, the cut of, of their jib. And I, I, Personally, don't think we've ever done that. I I, I admit that we um, highlight governance failings, and not just in those companies. By the way, I think we highlight those. I highlight governance failings almost daily when I see a case. I mean, we're doing the work to read materials constantly. I have seventeen people who are diving through information every day, and we're just highlighting things that people may have missed. And you know, it's it's. I'm not in any way um, defensive about. It. I think. I don't want people to think that those companies are bad. They're not. I mean, Mad Men deserves a ton of credit. They the, the industry wouldn't be what it is without people like Adam Bierman, without Andrew Modlin, literally building what they built early on. And I've known, you know, I looked at one of their transactions years ago and I remember thinking, gosh, these guys are incredibly forward looking. And, you know, and I've always respected what they've done. I think when people like that rely on underwriting professionals and bankers, to guide them as to what should be the way they do things, then you have to look at the hierarchy and how that didn't live up to the standards that maybe, you know, maybe they they there was so much excitement that things got rushed. But the reality is there's professionals that work in Canada or lawyers or other people that might have been able to step in there and say, hey, you know, there's a problem. This should be done differently. And I think by highlighting the things I'm highlighting, it provokes further conversation on those things in the future, which ultimately will lead to a better industry. So, I mean, I guess if if it comes off as critical, it's, it's um, I guess in life, you can't always highlight a failing without it looking like you're being critical, but we try to be fair. And we also try to highlight the, the again, the virtues of those companies. I think Tilray, it's about stock price. Men, men, you know, there were some governance missteps early on. I can't really say much other than I think their business is great, but Without governance, business itself can't flourish into what it should be. And that's what I think I was trying to do. So if I missed the mark on that, maybe that's something I need to do to do a better job of communicating that. But Twitter's a tough, it's a tough place. I mean, you have, I don't know, 280 characters. So it's hard to have the most nuanced conversation about. So you highlight it, you put a little bit of commentary. But like I said, I'm not spending 16 hours composing these things. Yeah,
0: um, no, I sorry. really appreciate that transparency. I mean, I think there's a, a lot of people in the cannabis industry that hesitate a lot to be uh, honest about their peers and about competitors because there's this idea that like the high tide raises everything, right? And and they don't want to be critical of cannabis because they want it to be legitimized. They want it to be federally legal. And I guess it's kind of refreshing for me that that you do that.
1: Well, I mean, at the look, I think that I really appreciate that perspective. I I'm trying to look at this through the mixed lens. I've been, you know, I'm not the first person, you know, um, like at the High Times event recently, they highlighted I, I can't remember his first name, but Peron, right, who went to jail, her Peron, I think. Right. And I mean, that guy's a pioneer like that. that I couldn't even clean that guy's shoes. But, you know, when you think of pioneers like a, like a Steve D'Angelo or um, or people at the NPP, the NCIA and, um, and normal, you know, I've met a lot of those people and I have personal relations with a lot of them and they deserve 50 times more credit than anyone like at my firm or, or, you know, and and so I respect them, but don't they also deserve me to bring the expertise and the professionalism that I bring from a different world so that those two can meet so that when this industry continues to move forward, it's not two steps forward, two steps back. It's two steps forward, one step back. And, you know, it's, I, I agree with you. Look, you try to temper it there's definitely things we see that we don't highlight, and you try to be somewhat selective. And you know, I think we, as we've grown, we we didn't really—I didn't even know what Twitter was. I mean, I knew it was, but we weren't using it a year and a half ago. But what we realized is that people were asking consistent questions of, "What do you think of this?" And we realized that when enough people ask that, you know, maybe people are interested in our perspective on these things because of our different backgrounds. And so I started to use it to to show that different perspective and. You know, again, we we need to do a better job. Probably from from your question, I probably need to do a better job of highlighting the positive. But there's so much positive that it would just seem like I'm cheerleading. Um, you know, there's so much positive. There's every once in a while there's something governance wise. You know, just today I was tweeting about the the German tender process, and I think you know how do you have an honest if you can't have an honest conversation uh, privately or, or, or I'm sorry publicly where people can chime in. It's hard to say to someone like I believe this because then they'll be like well then why aren't you writing that so in one way it's a way to consistently articulate. How we think about things, but you know I I do I am nervous about you know undercutting people who are doing a great job and. And you know and those companies specifically that are obviously leaders and are doing a phenomenal job it's like it's a shame, but it's a shame you brought that up because there's there's 50 companies, you know there's. There's a lot of companies that are suffering challenges, but, you know, by highlighting them, when they succeed in conquering their challenges, we then, it's, it's then our duty to kind of circle back around and say, hey, they, look how they challenged, look how they tackled that challenge. So that's how companies can actually differentiate themselves. I mean, everyone knows it's not in raw success that you differentiate yourself. It's how you tackle challenges. It's how you tackle those uncomfortable moments where someone asks, what happened in that investment? And you're like, well, we, we missed this you know, it's that humility to, to recognize mistakes. And even I right now, you know, I'm, I'm rethinking the, the sort of how we tweet just because I do want to support people that deserve it. And, you know, so, Hey, it's, it's a communications medium. We're trying our best, but, uh, but maybe we need to be a little more thoughtful of highlighting more positive stuff, but we try to do both. You know, it's, it's a lot about balance and, yep. um,
0: no, so. it's it's not negative. Your feed is definitely not negative. I, again, I sort of like the the slightly critical eye to it. I think it's uh, I think it's refreshing. Um, so you've you've deployed something like fifty million dollars in the last eighteen months. Correct me if I'm, I'm uh, wrong. Eight. there. 80 80 yeah excuse yeah. me um just 30 million dollars what's what's that yeah i mean not, only
1: 60 percent of my portfolio <laughs> disappeared <you
0: know? laughs> so i guess uh one of the questions that i always like to ask investors were there any that sort of got away was there anything that you wish you had gotten into or is it too soon to say
1: well no there's definitely i mean there's tremendous companies that uh capital is finite you know i i um i I was at a dinner recently in Boston and there was a company that I really liked, um, really liked. I uh, thought it was interesting. It didn't, there was something that didn't fit what we were trying to do and what we're trying to do. We have a pretty distinct thesis and, you know, and that's not always it doesn't mean that you can have the best key in the world, but it might not be able to turn the lock that we need to, whether it's a yield quality or other things, maybe there's a risk in the future that we're seeing that we don't, that we don't want to challenge, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to always tackle I'm, I'm a somewhat short, small person. You don't always want to tackle the biggest guy, you know, in prison, they say, when you go to prison, like you punch the, the biggest guy out. And <laughs> you, know, the, the, you don't always want to tackle the biggest challenge because there's already natural challenges in our space. So there's certain things that, you know, like Sun Tzu said, be a Valley, let things flow to you. And at times we have to have that method where if it doesn't line up, there's no point in trying to force it. And so there's a bunch of stuff. So I, anyway, I was at this dinner and they were at the table next to us. It was at cannabis in Boston. So this group was sitting, and I said, you know, I I made a point to go over and say, I, I really want you guys to, you should read, you should not read into the fact that we didn't invest in your in your Series A, because the reality is there's a million things going on. You shouldn't fill our lack of an investment with a narrative that, you, that you're not aware of, right? You don't know what the internal discussion was like in Merida, and so you shouldn't fill the narrative of a negative narrative of like, you know, they didn't like us, or the reality is I think Merida at this point is – we define ourselves based on the quality of the work we do that doesn't end up getting monetized today that may be monetized a year from now or six months from now or the, the way we use information we're not using. So if, if you think of it like a movie, there are amazing scenes that don't end up in the movie because it just doesn't fit because capital, time, bandwidth are just finite. And, you know, there are, there are companies that we don't invest in maybe because we think they're going to need a lot of governance stewardship which is not necessarily a comment on their business. And we don't necessarily have the bandwidth at that moment We'll look in how we allocate our partner's time and our team's time. And so I tell people not to, don't insert a narrative. There's, you know, when you look at Candescent, I met Adrian the CEO in Santa Barbara in 2014, when they had invited me out, uh, Graham Farrar, who is part of Glasshouse Ventures, another great company in Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. that um, he had invited me to speak about my experience in Connecticut and how, how the laws could affect uh california because i had some distinct perspective on when the law when the legal tidal wave comes what does it mean and when i was when i was there i met adrian and he would call me on his way from santa barbara to desert hot springs once a week and we developed a really good personal friendship and you know he kept saying when are you going to invest and i I said i don't have a fund yet remember this was 2014 15 16 -hmm. well at the end of 16 early 17 i have a fund and that's when you know merida invested in candace actually it took us until fund two because we didn't have the capital to make the type of investment that would make sense in a candescent. And that's when, when we put that $3 million in um, it was, it was the right time in the right place. And we knew everything about the company from soup to nuts. We knew it was a category that we thought was going to be big in California, you know, high end flower versus the race to the bottom where you get in a lot of states where it's commoditization and all these other elements have to come together. And I think Merida, you know, I think that patience of, if it's not a perfect fit, we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. But if you're only going to beat the point, and you know, I know I know it's, it might be impressive to like people in the industry, like 80 million bucks, but in the real world, that's nothing. Right. In in the general investment world, you know, Carlisle or BlackRock probably spends that much on staples and coffee every year. And so, you know, 80 million bucks has to be very carefully deployed if you want to get to the third fund. And um, and I think one one thing is we've really avoided that FOMO that can drive you into decisions and distort your process. And I think it also comes down to having a team of professionals around me, like a David Goldberg, a Jeff Monat, um, a Howard Glenn, a, a Max Gerard. You know, these are people who have amazing backgrounds. Uh, a Peter Rosenberg in San Francisco, a Kevin Fickle in San Francisco, a Matt Bartlett, people with differing perspectives where the respectful disagreement that you see maybe in Twitter is the same thing that we do internally when we're looking at investments, and that's how we get to the best place. And, you know, I have 17 employees. I'm not going to name them all, but... We have an incredible team of people and that I rely on them a tremendous amount. And that's one of the things that I think really unlocked the value of Merida is being in that sweet spot of being able to build, get, getting big enough now that we can build a team so that we're ready for fund three and and the SPVs. You know, we made our largest investment in a Michigan operator recently. The investment was bigger than anything we've ever done. And, you know, so sort in one way, it's unique to go back to your roots, which is developing a thesis on uh, the idiosyncratic opportunity when when the legal and the illegal c- the clash which is happening in michigan right now so you know it's been i can't tell you how proud i am but at the same time i'm there's a, a certain amount of uh we always feel the the specter of failure on our backs and because of that we want to be really careful
0: mm-hmm. so now that you're on fun three kind of what are you guys looking towards what's the future what are the segments that you're you're really excited about Then. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I think we're built to be in a in a good place because of the staff and other uh, elements that we've put in place. I think we have a a tremendous ecosystem of companies that allow us to horizontally, vertically contextualize any piece of information, any company, and and which again is a uh, in some ways it's a it's a smoother, it's a it's an accelerator, it's a facilitator. And so, what's next for us is um, there's a few places that you know I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to enhance my, I don't even look at them as competitors. They're all colleagues, you know, whether it's uh, a fund like Tuatara, Gotham Green, or a Poseidon, Arcadian, or whoever. All of those, I look at them as friends, colleagues. We're building something together. They're doing a great job funding their own companies. We, we often work together. Um, I don't want to forget my friends from Altitude either. I, I sit on panel and Fido partners, people we work with all the time. You know, I, I think there's so many people doing great things, but what's next for us really is we're really intrigued by the intersection of the the pure healthcare world and and cannabis. So as medical cannabis, which is obviously not a real designation, but more of a regulatory designation, yields to cannabis-based medicines and formulations and isolations and research, we're really intrigued by the the segmentation of the consumer from a medical consumer to a recreational, quote unquote, consumer, to the self-medicating consumer would obviously be considered a recreational consumer as well and and we're really looking deeply at the parts of the of the industry that are going to overlap and merge with traditional healthcare non-traditional healthcare homeopathic and you know the i use the analog of chiropractic when it was you know i remember um i grew up in a you know family of modest means and chiropractic early on i had a neck injury that required some chiropractic and I remember uh, not being able to, you know, you go like once a month because that's all my parents could really afford. And then all of a sudden, like in the, you know, mid 80s, that changed and it became a reimbursable insurance, you know, insurance reimbursement. And the next thing I know, I was going like once a week and I, I got better quickly. And I think you're going to see a lot of that with cannabis. And um, so there, you know, there's going to be workers comp. There's already a, it'd been 50, 60, 70 administrative law decisions sort of mandating reimbursement based on quote-unquote responsible use and other elements of... Because workers' comp, if you have someone who has a hurt wrist and they can use a transdermal patch with, with CBD and maybe a tiny bit of THC in it, that person can go back to work quicker than if he's sucking down Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. It may, may keep him off the... If he's a manual laborer, you don't want that person taking any kind of opioid. So I think you're gonna find a real intersection. And it could be, we made a recent investment in CB2 Insights, which is a medical data company. Because at some point healthcare is going to want validated data before they jump in. Again, it goes back to the thing we, we talked about first, is that consumption of data and information. Well, we're not the only ones, right? There's IBM has made a, a ton of acquisitions in the, the healthcare-related data space. Um, you know, Watson is basically a predictive analytics engine for everything, but look, it's pretty involved in healthcare. And and I think when you look at how the healthcare industry has evolved, I think cannabis is ripe for an evolution of itself. And when that merges, then people will look at Merida as a small player in a much larger landscape. And that larger landscape is gonna be real dollars. Pfizer doesn't spend 80 million like Merida uh, over three years. They spend that on like their diligence efforts at a five billion dollar, you know. And you know, Newell Rubbermaid may look at Kushko. And, you know, so there's all there's 20, 30 different ways it's going to intersect. And, you know, I'm not going to give away the whole game, but there's certain areas that we've identified are wildly attractive because we think that there are huge friction points that people are starting to solve in the cannabis way that will translate amazingly to traditional healthcare. And I'm lucky to be surrounded by a lot of healthcare related folks. Um, we haven't announced yet, but there's a senior uh, executive formerly of Medco which was one of the largest PBMs, uh, pharmacy benefits management, who's joining Merida um, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, they're going to help us sort of, again, drive, accelerate what we're looking at because we think healthcare dollars are going to flow over the next two years. And, and those are big dollars, right, Brandon? Those are not little nibbles. Those are $50, dollars investments at a clip mm-hmm. from healthcare organizations that are going to be looking for how do they tap into this multi, multi, multi-billion dollar market.
0: Yeah. So, no. Fascinating. Sure. I, I mean, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm super excited about the healthcare applications, especially as it relates to the other cannabinoids that don't get talked about nearly enough, but have real, yeah. real value there. Um, everybody and also talks consumer about-
1: research, right? Mm-hmm. Consumer research. Just, just to jump in here for a second, the consumer research is going to be wild. To get Think about, you know, people right now are there's still a discovery process. There's there's new consumers who are sort of figuring out what products they like. As you get greater consumer research from new frontier BDS headset you know, the the data companies in the space are starting to grow up themselves. And as those data companies grow up, they can provide more actionable data to people. And I think you're going to find better products, better brands, and that's why when you look at companies like Cresco or or Acreage, or uh, um, companies who are looking to get deeper in the branded space who are multi-state operators, um, it's interesting to watch all that. So that's another space we're really interested in. We're interested in the multi-state operators and how we can develop assets that would be attractive as they themselves look to remove friction to unlocking future value by developing brands and, and moving multi-state state to state in a more liquid fashion. And what are going to be the business models when potentially legalization comes or decriminalization or descheduling? You know, we're always looking at macro micro and we're we're trying to look for those friction points and see if we can find companies that are uh, decoupling friction from opportunity because th- there, there's just going to be natural natural
0: value there. I love sort of your 30,000 foot view and, and looking into the future. I think it's super valuable. People are super head da- heads down and sort of tunnel vision. I feel like sometimes uh, in this industry, um, last question, I'll get you out of here. You've been in the space, uh, let's see, almost seven years now, something like that, more than seven years. How do you feel about how it's evolved? Is it is it turning out the way that you would have expected or the way that you, I guess, wanted it to?
1: That's like asking a guy in a foxhole during a battle in Quezon in 1968, how he thinks the battle is going to evolve. Um, when you're in survival mode, you, you don't even think about it. But, you know, we've I, I've been my original partners. There's many moments when you're crisscrossing a state looking for a facility location where you can have these introspective conversations. And I think um, the one thing that I, I'm amazed by every day is the entrepreneurial spirit of of canvas of the the people's passion um the entrepreneurial passion the belief in in the intrinsic goodness of people um that's been you know I saw it early when my one of my original partners is a tremendously focused healthcare because of his own challenges that's how I originally got in the industry anyone can look at my bio I think it's pretty far out there at this point but you know I joined because of of our our joint belief as a, as a team as friends and as basically brothers that we could help bring a stable operator to a monopolistic environment or oligopolistic and that we could help patients in Connecticut and in Minnesota and so on, so on. And um, I've been blown away. And it, and, it, and in one way kind of pre, you know thought that it was going to happen is that as the medical side got more stable, people would become more comfortable with the legal side. And then it would start to say, hey, this can be stable. I can move the needle a little bit on legality. And then you start to see more rec markets and you know, and then there would be a kind of a clash of that regulatory disconnect between the East Coast and West Coast, the high-volume rec markets and the low-volume medical markets. And so, in some ways, we 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 predicted that, which is why I think if you look at the Fund One portfolio and Fund Two portfolio, the returns are are going to be asymmetrically high because of that. Was like you know, it was like a, a a band doing its first album. You know, you have all this passion pent up, and you just want your chance to to sing, and and so those funds were really. Uh, an unlocking of, of an intellectual approach that we had all this collection of data information and experience that we hadn't had a chance to unlock yet. Um, but like I said, we've been in a foxhole. I mean, there's every day you wake up and there's a challenge at a portfolio company or something happened or someone's bank account got closed or And so those challenges have have kept you, you know, have kept us pretty uh, close to the ground. Because when you say about my 30,000 foot view, the reality is I'm often, you know, belly to the ground. Um, it's it's amazing to be able to speak to you and you know uh, in in a non-threatening environment tell you about all the great thoughts that are going through our collective heads. But the reality is that most of the the excellence that people can observe in the space, whether it's MedMen, Tilray, uh, Cresco, Altitude, or you know whatever part you're in, all the way through to New Frontier and you know companies that I don't even invest in, like you said, companies that got away, companies that I loved, like a company like Baker that I always really admired and um, and think are in interesting parts of the, the landscape. You know, I think when you when you think of it like that and the challenge is, it's hard to get too far away from that imposter feeling at times where things are moving too quick. And I often, I try to, to do a little exercise when we look at opportunities and when our team is talking about it, where we say, are we stressed out by the fact that our ambition outstrips our resources right now? Or are we stressed at the potential failure of an opportunity that's mission critical or or a failure of a company or uh, is one of our companies not living up to its potential and you know you really do need to decouple that it to, to be able to to survive in the space because there are times where you feel like you're missing something where you watch someone do something wonderful and you go you know that's great it's amazing you want everyone to succeed you want a rising tide to look all boats but you also don't want to feel stressed that you're missing something when you're looking at your own because everyone's limited by resources, everyone's limited by time, bandwidth and you don't want to overstretch yourself. So we we try to do an exercise that says are we stressed by the failure of something or are we stressed by the potential opportunity that we think we're missing? Because those are two different feelings completely. And so we try to always keep a positive mindset about you know, look if it's a failure then we've got to get in there and fix it. And you know, uh you and I spoke offline about a few of those opportunities where we really had to dive in. And, and get, uh, they very involved in the operational components of a few of our portfolio companies, but on the flip side, you know, I think it's, it's, I have been so amazed and so humbled by, you know, when, when I tweet or what I, when I write, the fact that people even care, um, because, you know, those were private conversations um, a few years ago that didn't really, they only meant something to the people that could hear them. And I don't, you know, I, uh, often find myself at a lack of um uh, at a at a, a standstill at words to to express my gratitude and appreciation for the people who really were pioneers who who fought for the the the, the legalization and decriminalization and medical laws the people who very thanklessly fought and and haven't made anyone money but to make, they've made everybody money mm-hmm. and I, I try my best to be cognizant of those people and to to name them and that's one of the reasons why maybe, you know, we're a little bit more transparent is because, you know, it's easy to think I'm doing good. I'm great. Um, I don't, it's not easy to think that, but anyone can get wrapped up in success, even small successes sometimes can overwhelm people. And I think, um, the cannabis industry should, is defined by incredible people who have medically helped people who have, you know, who have fought their entire lives for, for a plant that, At at one point they were they were stigmatized and they were um, maybe laughed at and you know that's unfair and and the disproportionate criminality and people of color who are who are jailed for for possession and other things and. To see all of those wrongs start to you see the inkling of a light at the end of the tunnel um it's it's my pleasure every day to come in and try to make money for investors, but also build companies that are doing important things in the industry that will help the industry grow so that we can solve all of those legacy problems over time. And you don't get that if people aren't willing to work collaboratively and cooperatively and honestly and treat people with respect. And, and you know, and ultimately, I hope I'm doing some small part to do that. But I know that I'm barely making a dent and that there's a lot of other people doing way more important things than I am. And, and I just hope to to um, to continue doing the work and, and having a chance to speak about these things with people like you
0: incredibly self-aware and honest i really appreciate the time it's been really really great mitch thank you for joining us uh before i let you go how would how can our audience help are you hiring for anything or anything you want to plug Yeah, the uh the platform is yours
1: anything you better be careful you should ask around before you ask that question to us.
0: but uh,
1: <laughs> um you know we are hiring we're we're looking uh we continue to look for uh, senior executives that we can, we want to open an LA office uh, because we have several large companies down there. A lot of our money is in Southern California. Um, we are looking for someone in New York to uh, help my intrepid partner, Daisy Malay, who was just named one of high times, more influential people in the space or most hundred most influential people in the space. We need, you know, someone like a paralegal type or a, a junior accountant to help us because of all these portfolio companies. Now that we have a third party ministry and auditing, these are proactive elements that we want to get on top of. And we already have a great team that are doing it, but we're growing. And um, so we're looking for account executives. I don't know how you articulate it, but, and then we're always looking for analysts and brilliant people coming from the hedge fund world who have great expertise or from any world entrepreneurs. um, Hey, anyone can flip us a resume and we'll, we'll do our best to be responsive and to, to see if there's a fit and for the right people, there's always room with us. Um, and, you know, the next thing is they can look us, you know, we're at Meritacap on Twitter, uh, info at Meritacap. If you want to get our commentary, again, our point of view, we, we write one of these every six weeks. Um, the last one was 13 or 14 pages. So make sure you bring your eyeglasses when you read our stuff. And um, ultimately, we, we're, we're always interested in hearing from people. And if we're doing something wrong, let us know, like we want to be the best version of us every day.
0: Awesome. Well, Mitch, thanks again. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Brandon. Thanks you so much.
0: Absolutely.